the same care is not given routinely uh, to Black Americans as compared to um, other groups. And and you think, you know, this is this is just something that's it's a part of the system. I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. Today I'm talking to Greg Millett, Vice President for the American Foundation for AIDS Research. But today he's sharing a personal healthcare experience he calls dehumanizing. So, hi Greg, how are you? I'm doing well, Lisa. How are you? Good. It's really great to see you. I'm looking forward to our conversation and I'm I'm always in awe of uh, your commitment to your work, but today we're not talking about work. No, one of the few times we're not talking about work, which is great. Yeah. Uh, before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Greg Millett. I am the VP um, and Director of Public Policy at AMFAR, Foundation for AIDS Research. That's a big job. Vice President, go. <laughs> I love it. It's been nice, you know, once yeah. in the federal government to do something a little bit different. Yeah. So my understanding is you had a recent uh, healthcare experience, and I would love for you to talk to us about that. And the reason I think it's important is because especially now uh, during the pandemic and because of all the elevated conversations around racism, bias in healthcare, diversity and inclusion, I find that a lot of those conversations don't really go far enough to provide context and to help people really understand uh, where the challenges lie. And the, the other reason I, I was excited to talk to you is because as a healthcare provider, we often feel we treat everyone the same and that there's no bias. And we know that everyone has bias, whether we want to recognize it or not. So I think your story uh, can help uh, reveal some things that might cause people to have a moment of reflection uh, as they approach healthcare or th- even development of health po- healthcare policy. No, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, you know, the, the the harrowing thing about my story is, you know, as somebody who also works in healthcare policy, uh, just to see this type of bias up front was um, was was new. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us what happened and when did it happen? Sure. So this is about three and a half, maybe four years ago. Um, I was on a business trip um, on the West Coast, um, felt really ill, had to be rushed to the hospital, um, was in an awful lot of pain. And I was being told um, by the nurse and others that um, I would have to have immediate surgery. But um, they they needed to wait for the surgeon um, to come in at about four or five o'clock in the morning. But in the meantime, I, I was in pain that 
became progressively worse. Um, they found a room for me. Um, I couldn't sleep uh, through the night. This was around, I guess, 11 o'clock or so p.m. was when I was um, admitted, and I had it to wait until about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning for the surgery. Um, and I couldn't sleep. Um, they were giving me over-the-counter medications to try and alleviate the pain. It didn't, not at all. Um, I was in an awful lot of pain, and unfortunately, it grew worse. It was a type of pain that I'd never experienced before in my life and, and really frightened me. Um, I kept begging the nurse uh, for something, anything um, more powerful uh, to, to really help um, deal with the pain or knock it out. Um, she would always say, yes, 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 we're going to go check out on your chart and we'll get something for you. And then she would disappear and I wouldn't see her for another hour or so. Um, and in the meantime, the pain just got worse. And I mean, to the point that um, I was actually crying in my bed, I was um, screaming, um, you know, it's the middle of the night, I'm screaming and yelling. Um, and I Wow, and that's so the- uncharacteristic for you. I, I mean, I can only imagine how bad it must be. It was uh, if you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, it's, it's the whole, the whole thing was just bizarre. Um, and they would just repeatedly come back and, and say that, um, you know, oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll check and we'll get you something. And they never did. So finally, um, they were prepping me for surgery. They were taking me down um, uh, to the surgery room and the surgeon walks in. Um, he could see that I'm crying, that I am in um, absolute pain. Um, and I ask him, is there something that you guys can give me uh, to alleviate this right now? And he looked at me and he said, of course, I can't believe anything hasn't been given to you. And I said, I've been here for hours and I've been asking and nothing has been given to me. Um, And he looked at the nurse and said, give him something now. I mean, it was just immediate. Mm -hmm. And if you feel so, I, I remember thinking at that time, one, just how helpless you feel that your life is literally in the hands of somebody else and that it took a white male doctor to tell this nurse um, that they needed to give me something for something to actually happen, something that could have been so easily relieved hours ago um, Mm -hmm. where I wouldn't have to go through all of this unnecessary pain. That was the first thing I thought. The second thing that I thought was, you know, I come from an upper middle class family. I've been fairly privileged in my life. Um, You know, I think I speak or handle myself in a certain way um, that people may or may not have different uh, opinions about me, um, where some of that actually comes through. And it was amazing to me that it was very clear that they probably thought that I might have been an addict, um, that I might have been um, addicted to something and was just blithely asking for pain medication when I was clearly in in real pain. Um, And the fact that they didn't give it to me, um, you know, really had me thinking about it. It, It's funny because at the time I was working on uh, the opioid epidemic and people saying that, you know, opioids really don't affect African-Americans. But the main reason why the epidemic hasn't affected African-Americans is because doctors were not prescribing opioids to (laughs) African-Americans. And they weren't prescribing opioids to African-Americans because of racism. They thought that African-Americans were more likely to be able to handle pain. and they didn't prescribe it. Uh, where did that come from? This notion that black people are impervious to pain. 
Well, I mean, I think that there's two things that are there. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that black people are impervious to pain, I mean, you could go all the way back to the way that African-Americans were dehumanized during the uh, period of slavery um, and afterwards, where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain standard for, for black Americans as compared to everybody else that you have to work through um, the most um, uh, incomprehensible conditions. Um, but no one really thought about it because you were not necessarily a human being. So I think there's there's some of it that's, that's there, um, you know, that's a part of it. I, I think another part of it, too, is, um, uh, you know, that you're somehow undeserving of any of these medications yeah. or advances um, that, you know, either that you might not have access to healthcare um, to pay for it, um, or, you know, we don't want to waste um, our time on this. We've seen this before, you know, they, people sort of give you a cursory glance and they're like, oh, we know the story here. There's no reason for us to even spend any time or empathy on this person. And it was the first time in a healthcare setting where I really felt that acutely um, that, you know, I was otherized and um, it was very clear that um, uh, I, I didn't mean anything in terms of the healthcare for these particular nurses who took care of me um, um, over that period of time before I had access to my surgery. Did you have a conversation with the surgeon in any more detail about any of this? I didn't. I tried to contact him after the surgery. It took me a little while to recover. It took me um, a few weeks. Um, they gave me uh, pain medication. And, you know, the type of person I am, I never take pain medication. Um, and even after the surgery, I tried very hard not to take pain medication because I don't like it. It makes me feel dizzy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only took it when it really hurt so much, um, even after the surgery, that, that I took some. Um, but I do remember writing an email maybe two or three weeks after the surgery to the administrator, main administrator at the hospital, and I described my experiences. And Mm -hmm. I I said that, you know, this is who I am. These are all the experiences that I've had previously in life. Um, I was admitted to your institution, um, and I was treated in a way that was incredibly dehumanizing. And, you know, this is the name of the nurse and nurses that did this. Um, They genuinely didn't care about my welfare. Um, It wasn't until this surgeon by the name of such and such name came in that I was actually provided care that I think, quite frankly, would have been given to somebody else who looked very different um, than I had. And um, I never heard a response. Um, But I remember remember how angry I was um, in writing the email and trying to write it several times um, so that the anger could still be there, but that it wouldn't be taken in a way where it would just be ignored. Um, you know, so it was, um, it was just really a, a crazy and bizarre and, and harrowing experience. And it made me think that if I'm going through this, people who have far fewer resources or mm-hmm. less privilege than I do. Or information. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What are they going through? I at least have leverage and to a certain degree of, um, you know, people in different places that can really take some of these things to task. A lot of people don't. Um, and to think that this happens on a daily basis uh, was really frightening. And then I'm sure you saw as well, there's that article in New England Journal of Medicine that came out this summer uh, talking about the different ways that racism manifests itself in various disciplines of medicine, uh, where the same care is not given routinely uh, to Black Americans as compared to um, other groups. And and you think, you know, this is, this is just something that's, it's a part of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that only through the grace of God, if you have 
um, a physician or a healthcare provider um, who is really caring um, and a genuine human being um, that you could just be subjected to this so easily. Um, you know, and you think about the same thing as, you know, what took place with um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everything, everything else. This is all part of this larger meta narrative uh, where um, some lives are devalued and other lives aren't. You know, we talk a lot about trust on this podcast and in at Grapevine Health in general, because I believe uh, lack of information, low health literacy drives or fosters distrust. But I also think a lot of the distrust of the health system is coming from experiences like this. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, when, when people, you know, hear about the levels of distrust in the Black community, it's it's amazing how some people can say, well, where's this coming from? Or just say, oh, well, this is odd. That, that just doesn't make any sense without realizing, A, the privilege that they have to say that, um, and B, um, without knowing the historical context that quite frankly goes all the way from slavery. I mean, there's, you know, the historical record is just rife with um, unscrupulous doctors during slavery, like, you know, Cartwright and some others in the Deep South who experimented on black and brown people. Um, and and all of that is not necessarily been um, out there for Americans to, to, to consider. So, you know, people always think about Tuskegee and it's like, no, this, this happened before Tuskegee. Um, and quite frankly, it's still happening when I talked about, you know, not only the opioid epidemic and what's going on there, but um, even in the way that um, African-Americans were less likely to have access to testing for COVID-19 um, compared to other communities, despite the fact that our, everybody already knew that black and brown communities were more likely to test positive. So this is just part of a larger narrative. I mean, the US by 2044 um, is gonna be primarily a black and brown co country. The demographics are changing, they're changing rapidly. So the way that we set policy, the way that we have these conversations, um, the way that we interact with one another by virtue is going to have to change. Um, and that gives me hope that we can finally start reckoning with some of these inconvenient truths about our past that we really have skimmed over for centuries. Yeah, you know, when I, when I talk to people who've gone through trauma and they're afraid to really face the trauma, I remind them that on the other side of the trauma is uh, freedom and almost ecstasy, right? You can't get to the other side unless you push through uh, the, the dark parts. And I think that's what we're afraid of as a country. So what, do you, what is your recommendation for health systems, for uh, policy leaders? What policies need to change or be developed to address the challenges you face personally in the healthcare system? Well, you know, honestly, when you take a look at, you know, policies and policy leaders, I think the first change that we need is, you know, just what is the makeup of the people who are making these policies? So there was um, a, a, a survey that was released earlier this year that really caught my eye where they looked at Senate staff and the proportion of Senate staff were people of color. So people of color make up about 40% of the country right now. Uh, the proportion of Senate staff who were people of color were only 14% which is incredible because Senate and these staff, are the people who are doing the research and writing the policies, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. 86%. And we bring our experiences to these, you know, policy documents. 
Absolutely. And there's a lot of blind spots that are associated with those policy documents. There was a, a really beautiful study that was done by um, Levine. I can't remember his first name, but it was published in 1996 or so um, in American Journal of Public Health, where he really looked at various policies um, and mortality for breast cancer, for HIV um, and other diseases, and found that the policies favored white Americans as compared to communities of color. Um, and said that there was this inadvertent racism that was a part of these policies because of who crafted them, that there are these blind spots um, where they're not necessarily creating policies that are inclusive of all Americans, just some Americans. And unfortunately, that's something that we continue to see to this day. Um, if you only have 14% um, of Senate staff who come from communities of color, then you're not getting that inclusive experience and that's not being translated into policy. So I think that that's one of the places where we absolutely need to start. My last question has to be about the community. So in case people in the community are listening to this, maybe they relate to your experiences uh, in, in healthcare. I'm, I'm really struck. What, what really struck me was that you still have not gotten a response from the healthcare leadership to your letter. I just, that is, that's unconscionable. What is your recommendation to community members who want to be heard, whose voices need to be heard to what, what should they do to, to help elevate these conversations? I, I think that, you know, community members really first need to avail themselves of any type of advisory boards or any types of boards that are, are part of these healthcare systems to make sure that people really understand the circumstances that we're going through and, and, and to make yourself not only heard, but seen um, that are part of these systems. Um, I think that, you know, there's certainly the media. Uh, the media is would amplify these types of voices, particularly now in the wake of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, where the media is much more amenable to telling more of these stories and, 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 and bringing it forward. Even simple things like just posting your experiences on Facebook or social media even. I mean, the degree to which that has even changed things uh, with people losing their jobs or um, really understanding um, the degree to which this is pervasive. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but but also um, something that's been amusing just to see all the different activities of doing while black um, that place us all in jeopardy. And I think putting some of that in the media and the social media in particular is, is very helpful. And I think that the last thing that um, community members could do is, you know, to really share our experiences with one another, um, to, to speak with other members of our community who've been through some of these experiences to learn on how they might have rectified the situation or dealt with some of those situations. Um, there's power in banding together and the degree to which we could collectively move forward and address some of these issues um, is how we make change. Um, and I think that that's something that our community has done for centuries and will continue to do. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Greg. This has really been insightful and I, everybody needs to hear about this experience. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. That was Greg Millett, Vice President at AMFAR, sharing his story about bias in the healthcare system. He offered recommendations for health system leaders, policymakers, and the community to address racism in healthcare.
Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.